0: what a what a year it has been so far. This is this is it's been an amazing year. I think that's that's uh, wow. It's I think in so many ways it's it's been crazy, hasn't it been? And here we are now in the month of August. This has been going on for so long, and so much has happened. Two month in two months, we'll have the Feast of Tabernacles. And so many things have happened. It's been a domino effect in so many ways. There's been a lot of confusion as we've been moving forward in our society. And initially, we started this whole thing off. Initially, there was a lot of uh, people. The big joke was the toilet paper run, right? Until it came close to home. My, uh, my wife had to, in an emergency situation, had to help my mother-in-law, gets some um, toilet paper online and it ended up being one of those industrial roles that was kind of like a big tire. So that wasn't a, that became more of a problem, but it's, uh, it's been something that we have could have not foreseen. And I think for all of us and we look around our society, there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of distrust that's been out there. We see it all around us, distrust in every level, from the politics around us, the politicians, to our government officials, to everywhere we go, there's a lot of distrust. And I would say a strong underground current that's been happening. One year ago, there was a Pew Research Center. It had this uh, article. It was Trust and Distrust in America. And it had this research, and it was saying that public confidence in government was at a historic low. That's a year ago. Historic low in the United States of America. And no no surprise, even the mistrust of others has grown as well. I think this whole experience has developed some of that. I was, I was approaching someone a while, a couple months ago in the Home Depot. And I had a question to ask. And someone was working at the Home Depot. And so I was approaching them to ask the question. We were about 15 feet away. And as I was walking towards them, they were walking backwards. And so to get closer to ask the question, I kept walking towards her until I saw her hand go up. And I realized, oh, she's, she's afraid I'm too close. We were about 15 feet apart. And so then I explained my question, so then she walked by me in the aisle. It was only maybe 10 feet apart to, to show me where to go. But there's been a lot of, I think it's, it's some of that has fed that, but it's been working up over a period of time, a lot of distrust. In addition, we also see in our society a lot of our freedoms being taken away, a lot of views towards biblical values. And we can say we've talked about this. Absolutely, we can see that persecution is on the horizon. Prophetically, we know it's there. We know it's going to happen. It's going to take place. Let's turn to Matthew 24. This was referenced in the uh, sermonette by Mr. Pate. Matthew 24. We oftentimes will go to Matthew 24 prophetically because it does outline the sequence of how things take place at the end of the age. In Matthew 24, and in verse 4, it says, And Jesus answered to them when His disciples come to Him and say, When is the end of the age? When When will this occur? And He says, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So we we see a lot of deception. That's the uh, one of the signs you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you do not are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. And that's one thing we have to keep in mind. It says, don't be troubled. We know these things are going to happen. So we can't get scared. We can't get concerned. Our our strength and trust is in God. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Notice verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. As we get close to the end of the age, brethren... We are going to have, as a church, we are going to have a lot of challenging decisions that will have to be made. There's going to be a lot of challenging decisions. We're talking about decisions, judgments, things that our church leadership are going to have to be making as we get to the end of the age. And we're talking about situations and decisions much more challenging than COVID-19. We see this in Matthew 24, this as we are a support network in the church. We see that eventually there is going to be persecution. How do we handle that as a church? How do we handle that? What kind of decisions will our church leadership have to make? How do we make decisions? How do we handle decisions and judgments related to the gospel message as we head into persecution? What about the organization, the decisions that have to be made when we go to the place of safety? There's going to be a lot of difficult decisions, a lot of difficult judgments that have to be made. Brethren, today I would like to touch on the place of safety and other challenging decisions that the church of God will face. We will also look at the question of what type of response to our leadership we should have as we get close to the end of the age. The title of this message is, The End, Church Organization, and Unity. Let's go ahead and pick this back up in Matthew 24 where we're at. And we'll continue in verse 11. So it talked about many will be offended and betray one another. And will hate one another. Verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So we see the sequential, these, these events being put out there. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And we know as one of our strongest missions as a church is to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that that has to go out before the end can come. Prophetically, it's something that we are a part of as a body to preach the gospel. And so we see here in verse 15, so this gospel message, and when you think about the, the organization, how do we preach the gospel message to this world? There has to be decisions, don't They have to be made, aren't there? Decisions, judgments, as we move forward. Verse 15, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, so a key of prophetic prophecy here, whoever reads, let him understand. This is talking about the abomination of desolation. We know in Daniel it talks about this. The daily sacrifices will start. And in order for the sacrifices to be taken away, they have to start. We know that in Israel, the Sanhedrin, they have been doing Passover sacrifices. Some people have pointed at that. But those are not daily sacrifices. We know the great false prophet will push worship towards himself. And we know this progression, the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, verse 17, let him who is on the housetop not come down and take anything out of his house. So when this happens, the abomination of desolation, there is is something that happens right after that. It says, let him who is on the housetop not come down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back and get his clothes. So don't go back. Don't go back, just be moving forward in what is the context. Verse 20, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now, some people say that the flight, some people might say, well, that is, that is us going up to meet Christ in the air. Is that the context? Well, if you look at it, why would you say, wait a second, if this was Jesus Christ, his return, wait a second, let me go back and grab my things first before I come and meet you in the air. Let me go grab this first. Well, just hold on. Now, would that make any sense? What, what about the Sabbath or winter? Would it matter at all if Jesus Christ returned and our resurrection, our ascension, was on the Sabbath or the winter days? Would that prevent us from going? Well, obviously, the context is not the resurrection. The context is the flight. The flight, which we would call the place of safety. The flight. Where else is flight mentioned? Where else is flight mentioned as we look at this? When we think about going back, it gives the impression that there is a moment in time of decision. That some people, the tendency would be to hold off and want to go back, to grab something. It's giving us warning because warnings are not a warning if that's not the tendency. If your tendency is to do those things and you're warned, that is a good warning. It's not just words to put in the Bible. There is that there would be the tendency to go back. So what we see here is a time of decision. Decision. Do I go or do I stay? Do I move forward or do I stay back? Now, keeping this in mind, again, it says flight. We look at this, we know in Revelation 3, when it talks about the Philadelphia. Spirit, the Church of Philadelphia, that says that they are kept from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So if you're talking about a trial that hits the whole world, what would that be? That's going to affect the whole world. Well, it's, we would say, of course, the tribulation. What does that sound like? The tribulation. Let's turn to, to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. There's going to be a lot of decisions, a lot of judgments, in the future. Much more challenging than what we face right now. Revelation 12. And in verse 13, it says, um, well, in verse 12, it says, therefore rejoice, O heaven's and you who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth in the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Of course we know the woman is symbolic for the church. And so it says uh, they persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But v- verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly. Now remember, in in Matthew, it talked about that your flight, okay, similar to the time sequence, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. It doesn't say place. Says says to her place where she is nourished for time, times, and half a time. We know that other places in Revelation, it talks about 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, a three and a half year period. We know that that is the time of the tribulation and the day of the Lord. It says from the time, times, and half the time is from the presence of the serpent. So again, away from the, the Satan, the devil, verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth. Like a flood after the women, and we also know that symbolically the Bible refers to floods as armies. Oftentimes, so this is a flood coming after, or army coming after the church, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the women, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, enraged with the church. And he went, notice this, he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now I think this is, this is reading this, brethren. It's very sobering and it's something that we all have to think about. We want to be close to God. We want to be strong. With that connection with God, it says the rest of her offspring. We know there is a group of people. We, we know in, in Revelation, it talks about the Laodiceans who will go through the tribulation. Now, they are a part, they are a church of God. They are a part of the church of God, it says, but, but the, the rest of her offspring, it says, notice this, brethren, it says, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are people who keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, they are keeping the Sabbath. And so what we could say here, brethren, it's a sobering thought. As we take it in internally for ourselves, we could say, because they keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, we could say that keeping the commandments is not enough. That's a a sobering thought for all of us. But in verse 14, as we look at this place of safety, we know that Philadelphia will be in this place of safety. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. That she might fly in the wilderness. So this this the church is given two wings of a great eagle that she might have this flight into the wilderness, to her place of safety. So three and a half years. And we read about the flood of armies. We hear about the uh, that come after the church. We know that they're swallowed by the earth. And what would what it was what does that kind of sound like when we're talking about armies coming after a group of people? Suddenly they disappear. They're going into the wilderness. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds kind of similar to the Israelites, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like the Israelites. They were going into a wilderness. They were a group of people. They were organized. They had structure. They had organization. They were going to the same place. They were going, and they were were being chased by an army of of people, the, the Egyptians. And what happened? They were swallowed by the Red Sea. Similar occurrence, wasn't it? Well, what else? What else is similar about the Israelites and the, the place of safety in this reference? Well, let's turn to Exodus 19. As we think about, again, as we think about the challenging decisions as the body of Christ being unified... Challenging decisions ahead that we all face, that the church of God faces, that the leadership of the church faces. What else is similar to the Israelites? Exodus 19, Exodus 19, verse 3, it says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He's talking about eagle's wings for the Israelites. The same analogy for those who go to the place of safety. Two wings. Well, how did the Israelites fly? Let's turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, it says, He found him in a desert land, and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. They were in the wilderness... Just like we will be in a wilderness when we go to the place of safety, a place of protection, if we are worthy. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. This is the description that God is using for the Israelites. So what are we we saying? Did the Israelites, did they get on a big bird and fly? How did the Israelites get to the wilderness? How did they get to the place of safety? Was it a flight in an airplane? Well, they walked, didn't they? They walked. Now... Do we do we know how we will escape, how we will go? Well, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know if we will f- be flying or walking or how that works. But it is interesting. Their flight was walking. And I imagine we'll all want comfortable shoes if we are walking. I remember I was on a uh, backpacking trip one time, and I had some boots that weren't properly worn, at, worn in. And very quickly soon on, when you're when you every time you take a step and your blisters are being rubbed on by your boots, you're not a happy camper, you're aware of every step. So I switched to my sandals. And for the next close to forty miles, I wore my sandals. And I did a lot better. So I don't know if we'll be wearing sandals, but if you if you're wearing hiking boots, I'd I would recommend breaking them in before going to the place of safety if we do, in fact, walk. Well, we don't know, brethren. We don't know how we will get there. But what we do know is that a a major point of the Bible is that some of these things, as, as God told to Daniel, they are sealed for the time of the end. Things that Daniel didn't even know. And we know that God will reveal that knowledge. So the question becomes, well, how will God reveal that knowledge? How will God reveal that knowledge as we get close to the end of the age? Well, there's a number of ways. There's a number of ways God could do that. But how has God historically revealed that knowledge? When we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the New Testament, historically, brethren, if there's a pattern, God has used his leadership to organize, to unify. There has not been chaos. And the point is, we don't know. Could God reveal that individually? Well, he certainly could. But historically, how has God done it? Could he use the church? Well, that's entirely possible. Has he used the church in the past? Absolutely. Brethren, there will be decisions as we get close to the end of the age. They have to be made. Challenging decisions. In Revelations, it talks about the place of safety. Safety. Being 42 months. If you take uh, 12 months in a year times three and a half years, you get 42 months. It also references 1,260 days. So we're on the same page. Three and a half years. You can read that in Revelation 11, 2 and 3. But let's look at Daniel 12. Daniel 12. And I want to show you something as as we think about... The place of safety, Daniel 12, and we'll start in verse 4 here. Daniel 12, verse 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's move the page over to Daniel 12. We'll pick it up in verse 9, it says, go your way, He repeats that to Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Verse 10, many shall be purified, made white and refined. We know that that is part of the, also the tribulation does do that for some. We continually want to be prepared and be refined now, but the wicked shall do wickedly and None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So there's a difference between those who are wise and those who understand and those who don't. Notice verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So the time of the end, 1,290 days. Now, if you compare this to Revelation, the numbers don't match. What's going on? The Apostle John, did he not know? Was he mistaken? What Daniel wrote? Well, if you look at this, brethren, there is, if you look at this, 1,290 days. And 1,260 days in Revelation. That is the time of the tribulation, the day of the Lord. 1,260 days. This is referring to 1,290 days from the sacrifices taken away. So what's, what's the, the difference? Well, there's 30 days difference between the sequence really sounds like with the abomination, the sacrifices taken away. 1,290 days, 30 days until the Great Tribulation starts. 1,260 days. There is a time gap between the two. So when the daily sacrifices are away, 1,290 days versus 1,260, a 30 day difference. You could say, well, what's the, what's the gap there for? Why is there a 30 day gap? Well, brethren, we don't know fully. Mr. Ames has wondered if possibly before that if possibly there's a 30 day period where the brethren of God have time to get ready to go, to make that journey, to get to the location before the tribulation starts, a 30-day window. Now, that's not the only thing that we see here. So a 30-day difference between, from the sacrifices 30 days later to the start of the great tribulation and beyond. Notice verse 12. Blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335 days. Now, we come up with another number. This is not the same as the, the other two. 1,335 days. This is an additional 45 days prior to when the sacrifices are taken away. Now, what's going on here? Again, we don't know. We don't know, and we know that some of these things will be revealed as we get close to the end of the age. Decisions will have to be made. Decisions that will depend on our life. Our livelihood, more than just preferences. But notice this, this is really interesting. It says, blessed is he who waits. This is 45 days before the sacrifices are taken away. Blessed is he who waits. Why is that? Why would it be blessed as he who waits? Wouldn't you wait till the sacrifices occur before going to the place of safety? Why does it say blessed is he who waits? Well, brethren, this is where it can get very complex in that time frame. When you realize that your life is at stake, when you're talking about persecution... When you're talking about going to the place of safety, it's very possible, maybe in the news sources say, hey, the sacrifices, this is, no one else is reporting this, but my site is saying the sacrifices have ceased. Maybe on the internet, there is different, we think news is confusing now. Do you think that trend will continue? Maybe there are, there are people that are looking for sacrifices. Could it be possible that some news outlets are saying, "Hey, the sacrifices have been going on for quite a while. They've ceased to. They, they don't. They're not there anymore. It's not widely being reported to in the media." And a brethren, if it's a personality we trust, could that be could that pull on a person? Especially when we know we're getting close. The sacrifices have been occurring. Any day here, we're going to flee. Maybe there could be sources of information that say it's a cover up. The sacrifices have stopped. If things are confusing now, brethren, could they be confusing then? Who will make that determination of when it's time to go? It says, Blessed is he who waits. The indication would be now we again we we don't know exactly how this will be, but it's possible. We might say, is it possible that some flee early? It says, blessed is he who waits. Well, when it gets to more than just our personal preferences of what is difficult or challenging, when we're talking about our livelihood, when we're talking about life and death, going to the place of safety, It's going to be a massive decision. There will be decisions to be made, and God will provide a way. And we could ask again well, could God reveal this to individually, to all of us, to all the body of Christ, wherever they are? It's possible. But then again, is it possible he could reveal it to his leadership? Is it possible? Has God ever done that before? It's possible. But even before then, brethren, even before the tribulation, even before the abomination of desolation, there are going to be difficult decisions that are on the horizon. There's going to be difficult decisions as we get into persecution, the famine of the word, where our livelihood depends on it, So brethren, how do we become a a group, a body, that is not scattered all over the map? That doesn't have all sorts of different opinions? With all the choices that lie ahead, how do we stay unified? How do we do that as we face challenging times ahead? How do we stay unified? Well, let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and in verse 11. Ephesians 4 and verse 11 and it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why is that? Why was there even the need for that? It says, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is how the body of Christ is edified in many regards, through that, that position, those positions. Notice verse 13. Now why, why do we have these individuals? Why do we have leadership? Notice verse Verse 13, till we all come to the unity. So this is designed to be unifying. Organization is designed to unify in the church of God. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. How do we do this? It says to the measure and stature and the fullness of Christ. And how is that? How do we get into the fullness and stature of Christ? How do we become unified? Well, again, the, verse 11, it talks about the leadership that God puts out there. Notice, notice verse 14, "...that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine or belief by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive." But in speaking the truth and love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. So we become unified. We become together. We are not carried away by these things, by the, the leadership that is placed within the church, the organization. That creates unity. Unity. When we look at our headquarters team, headquarters, when we look at Mr. Weston and what he is trying to do, As we move forward, there are going to be challenging, even this year, challenging decisions Mr. Weston has had to make. Those challenges will just get more and more challenging as we move forward. They're not going to get easier and easier. They're going to get more and more challenging as we see, again, when we see persecution rising, decisions judgments. And when we look at the unity, why does that create unity? Why does church organization create unity? Because we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different upbringings. We might tie our shoelaces differently than someone else. We might make poached eggs differently than someone else. We might prefer scrambled eggs over poached eggs. You know, we have so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences, so many different things we've read, different educations of what our perceptions of how we see the world. That is why church organization creates unity so we can be pulled together. Now that's not we're not talking about we're not talking about doctrine that varies, but there are judgments that have to be made. We know that we are to follow, Our leadership as they follow Christ. And if they aren't following Christ, then that's a problem. But within the context of doctrine, doctrine in the church, the organization, it creates order, it creates peace, it creates unity. Brethren, are you prepared as we go into unchallenged difficult times? Are you prepared to be unified with the decisions that have to be made as we go into the difficult times ahead? As we move into the range of persecution? As we move into the end of the age? Are you prepared to be unified? We look at every aspect of how God has dealt with organization. One of the key aspects is the family. You know, the father, ideally the mother and the father, they're mutual. They're, they're one. They become one. That's the analogy, like God the Father and Jesus Christ. But when a decision has to be made, if there can't be a a if there are in rare cases a decision that doesn't isn't agreed upon God has designed it for unity to have the head of the household make a decision and that is reflected in every way that's what creates unity and togetherness so there isn't division in the family and i think sometimes people with bad backgrounds let's say let's say they've had a, an abusive father it doesn't make, they have an initially a difficult time with the concept of God the Father and the, the leadership of the Father in the household because they have an emotional connection to it. That every time it comes up without even logically thinking it through, they, they emotionally are affected by it. And sometimes they have to work with that. Even connecting with their Father, their Heavenly Father, as their perfect Father. Brethren, we can't use emotional connections from our past or in situations of a bad marriage, or maybe the husband was abusive, or a wife that was really challenging. We can't use those emotional connections to throw out the whole concept of how God organizes His family, His church. It's so important for all of us as we go into the end of the age. We see this over and over again. God has always had a church of God on the earth. Jesus Christ appointed Peter. Let's turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and verse 18. So he's talking to Peter, Jesus Christ is, and he says, And I and I also say to you that you are Peter. This is a play on words. You are Peter, Peter, little rock, or little pebble. And on this rock, the big rock, Jesus Christ, he's not building the the church on Peter, the little rock, on this rock, Jesus Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. In other words, with Peter's death, that would not be the end of the church because it's not built on Peter. It was built on the big rock, Jesus Christ. The gates of the grave will not prevail against it. Now notice in the context of this continuing moving forward organization. Verse 19, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, will be loosed in heaven. These are binding decisions, binding judgments. Again, it's not contrary to doctrine. But there are decisions that our headquarters team makes decisions on. In in some cases, there has to be this, this exact terminology for divorce and remarriage. Binding and loosing. In some cases, people are bound and are not to remarry. We find that very clearly in the Bible. In some cases, they are, they are loosed. And they can remarry. But these judgments have to be made, and it says whatever, it doesn't, it's not the opposite. It doesn't say whatever is bound in heaven is bound on earth. That would be obvious. Because God is supreme. But God is giving this, this, this truth, the, the, the Peter, this organization or this this organized church, the power to bind and loose decisions, to make judgments within the context of certainly following Christ, following the doctrines of the church. But this is something that is a big part of the church leadership, and so it is something that does create unity on tough decisions that have to be made. As we look to headquarters and Mr. Weston as we move forward, or whoever the leadership is at that time, it's something that we have to, it does unify us. In chapter 18, it talks about the same context with decisions. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven. It talks about when two or three are gathered in my name. Sometimes people use that. They don't need church leadership, but the actual context is exactly with church leadership is saying. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven. It's talking back about what Peter was told. And if you are gathered in my name, no two or three of you talking about the leadership, I will be in the midst of you. And we have the council of elders that they gather together, and we trust that God is in the midst of them, that they are making decisions, helping Mr. Weston, with who has the ultimate say, binding decisions. And again, this is not binding decisions that are contrary to church doctrine. That would obviously be something that we would not follow with. We follow our leaderships as they follow Christ. And we follow the, the fruits of their lives. But brethren, we are given the role to the side. And it's something that we have to think through now because times that will get challenging are ahead for all of us, that are more challenging than what we are facing now. It's after we get close to the end of the age. We saw how the body was organized. Let's turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Colossians 1, and in verse 15, it talks about the church. And it talks about how Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 15 through 18, Christ is the head of the church. And all of us could say, I think all of us could say, well, yes, theoretically, Christ is the, the head of the church, and especially back in, in biblical times. The question for us today, brethren, is, can all of you say, not just theoretically, today, can all of us say, not just theoretically, that Christ is at the head of the church? Do we really believe that? Was that just something that was for the New Testament, early first century time? Do we really believe that Christ as he said he would be, is at the head of the church? Do we see that? And I think sometimes we can talk about sometimes faith. But having the faith that God will follow through with what he said, that he will be the head of his church, he will be there for the decisions that are made and that we Are okay with decisions and judgments that our church leadership have made? Do we feel comfortable with that? It's something to think about because the decision factor gets so much more complicated as we move ahead. Can we say that Christ is is at the head of the church? Not just theoretically, or he should be, or I hope so. Not just that we, we just attend because they happen to keep the commandments and the holy days and the Sabbath, but we, we do have that. And that's certainly important, but we do have that trust as we move into challenging times. Because I think it's often so easy for all of us to agree with individuals who we agree with. After all, that's why we agree with it, right? But if there's an individual who makes a judgment or decision that we don't agree with, that's when it gets challenging. Is Christ at the head of the church only when we agree with the decision? Is that how it works? I think it's so easy to second guess, to critique, if we don't have the faith that Christ is at the head of his church. You know, a number of years back, I think a lot of us have, you know, with Mr. Whitfield's recent death, have had a lot of good memories of him. But I remember a number of years back, and it involved Mr. Whitfield, and, and we were living in Estes Park, Colorado at the time, and my wife and I were organizing the initial onset of a church campout in Estes Park, Colorado at the opening of the Rocky Mountain National Park, about seven and a half to 8,000 feet. And I remember uh, w- along with the McMillans, also Mr. Uh, Sean McMillan was helping out as well, we were initially, my wife and I were initially kind of getting things figured out because we were on location. We were, we knew the lay of the land and we had access to talking to individuals. And I remember, I think it was at a Saratoga weekend, we had approached Mr. Whitfield and we're talking about the ins and outs of the camp out. And we mentioned to him that for church services, because every day, from what we've looked into, we've experienced it in the mountains during this time of year. Every day in the afternoon, there is a rain shower, and it would probably be better to have church services in the morning. Now, we were scheduled to have an open amphitheater. There was a backdrop, open air, and uh, that's where we were going to have church services. But Mr. Whitfield said at the time, he said, you know what, I, I want to have a afternoon service. And at the time, my wife and I thought, well, wait a second. We thought, uh, that's not the best time to have a, a church service. Uh, the rain shower, that's, that's probably not the best idea, but Mr. Whitfield decided to go forward with it. So he like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll go with it. Maybe we'll get rained on. Maybe that's the case. So we get to the camp out. We're there, we're in the amphitheater, we're in the open air, this, the, and, uh, So Mr. Whitfield, he's standing up there. He's giving the sermon, and it's an amazing view. We're up, you know, they talk about the Rocky Mountains as America's Alps, beautiful scenery, mountains in the background, snow-capped mountains. And Mr. Whitfield, he's up there. You know, he's tall, and then beyond him is the, the mountains. You can see right behind him the valley and the mountains, and we're in the amphitheater. And as he is speaking, you start seeing the rolling dark clouds billowing up. And they start rolling over the mountains. And we're thinking, okay, here comes the rain. And suddenly lightning is striking whew, off in the distance. And we're getting, you know, we're ready for it, ready for it. And we go through the entire service. At the very end, we start to have a few little drops, sprinkles that were not, it wasn't rain, it was just like little mist. And as soon as service is ended... The rain just came unglued and went loose. We made it all the way through search services at the end of the closing prayer. Whammo! Everybody was there moving off. People had to run for it. The rain just came down. And we're talking about, you know, we, we hear rivers of living water. In this case, there was rain everywhere. There, was, there, was, there were uh, rivers going, hitting tents and ramping over tents. And uh, suddenly hail started coming down. Covering the ground with hail. The situation as was amazing to me and stuck out to me in that particular case. In a situation like that, that God backs up the decisions of His ministry. It's a lesson that stood out to me in that sequence. It did not rain. We made it entirely through the service. And then it did rain. Brethren, in our lives as we move forward, as we move forward in our lives, as we think about the end of the age, I think it's so easy in our, in cases where we don't necessarily agree with something to Second guess to talk about it. We know in Exodus 16, it says that that the Israelites, what was their response? Well, they murmured. Now, murmuring sounds kind of humorous. Even saying it just sounds kind of humorous to say murmuring, you know, murmur, 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 murmur. We don't use the murmuring. We don't say, I, "I'm calling you into my." The boss doesn't say to their 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 employee, "I'm calling you into my office because you were murmuring to us." I mean, we use it in the church, but it's not really used murmuring. But what is murmuring? It's second guessing. It, it's coming up with different ideas than has been decided. It's disagreeing. And you look in Exodus, Exodus 16, verse 7, and in verse 8, it says, they murmured against Moses, and then what did it say? They murmured against Moses, and what was the response? In verse 8, it says, your murmurings are against, not against us, but against the Lord. God viewed the murmuring, the the second guessing, that they were talking against God himself. God Himself. And it makes sense, because brethren, if we do believe, if in the context of doctrine, if the doctrines are there, if they're following Christ, if they are the leadership that we feel like Christ is leading, if we are second-guessing, if we are talking ideas that are opposite, Of a judgment or decision that is reflected right back to Jesus Christ. I want to turn to Exodus sixteen real quick as we conclude here. The same sequence, so we'll just pick up another example. So they in Exodus sixteen, you know, again, he, he said in verse eight. Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So they were initially, it says, they were murmuring against Moses. So reflected right back to him. But if we look into the connection as we move forward. In chapter 17, verse 3. They start murmuring again. It seems like it happens all the time. You turn to chapter and chapter. Okay, more murmuring. Okay, if I... Flip a few pages just by happenstance. I'll probably jump on to murmuring again. You know, it's, it's there all the time, murmuring. But it's interesting in chapter 17. So it talks about them murmuring. It says they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord not among us? We're questioning that God is even among us when we start to question in that regard. But I think it's interesting. It almost seems like it, it's out of place. It jumps into the story about it jumps into the story about the Amalekites. Okay, they just dealt with them murmuring. Now they're jumped into the story about the Amalekites. They were going and fighting the Amalekites. And it talks about, you're familiar with it, you're talk, when, when they fought against the Amalekites, when Moses lifted his hands, the Israelites prevailed. Or they won. They were winning. When his hands were lowered, he got tired. If you ever song lead, led, especially those who do the uh, the hymn sing on Friday nights, if you're waving your arms for a half hour, it's a good uh, cardio workout. If you just keep your hands up, it wears you out. But you imagine Moses having to keep his hands up. He's just exhausted, probably shaking there. And here they are with Moses. And so when they left, lifted his hands, he prevailed. When they came down, they started losing. And so what they had to do, could could have God done it any other way? Well, absolutely. He didn't have to have Moses' hands lifting up. Could have they done it could have God done it any other way? Well, absolutely. When they lifted, they had to lift Moses' hands. In a situation not just of being thirsty, but of a situation of actually life and death situations. Why would a story like this come after right after murmuring? Could it be, brethren, that in a time of serious danger, in a time of situations where there are decisions to be made when we're talking about life and death decisions, that God led through his leadership? Could it be that God was showing that there is to be unity in order to prevail? That there is unity when the people of God encourage and use support for their leadership. Could it be, brethren? Brethren, as we get close to the end of the age, there are going to be challenging times. Challenging decisions. There will be a time where the church is taken to a place of nourishment, a place of protection, a place of safety, and there will be challenging decisions. As we move into the time of persecution, there will be challenging decisions. And the question is, are we going to scatter them? Are we going to decide for ourselves, or by unifying under our leadership as they follow Christ? Brethren, as different decisions are made as we move forward, let's rally behind and lift the hands of our leadership in unity.